This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm totally fried, a bit tired today. <laughs> Dr. Lauren's in the studio. How are you going? I'm very much the same, actually. Yeah, we've um, yeah. Yeah, we got kids. Yes. Not, not the same kids, but... No, that would be a surprise, everyone. No. Um, yes, no, it's, it's been an interesting morning for me and for yeah. you as well. But oh, um, yes. luckily, kids are cute. Exactly. I, I actually was saying that to him this morning. I'm like, I'm lucky that you're so cute. Cause I think that's why we helps. keep them alive. Yeah. But so it counts. That's so, it. You know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Jeff, you're in the house. How you going, buddy? Good. Although I've got this, I've had back pain since for the last week. Oh, but um, yeah, we, so we're what's, all, what's to come? We are all falling apart, aren't we? <laughs> it's cold old age, but it's well, not. Well, Doctor Ka- Doctor Catherine's here too. She's she's a physio. She can take you out into the kitchen and sort you out. Well, that's how my my GP advised that the first thing to do was was to see a physio. So the the best advice I understand. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. As well as keep mobile. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, it's funny though because Dr. Catherine and I were talking just before the show and I've been seeing my physio for some extraordinary back pain for the last couple of months and last weekend I got a new mattress. Pain gone. Love That's... physios though. Love physios. <laughs> okay. But my new mattress, love it more. For, a good mattress is for, very important. For scientific for scientific reasons, not staying off topic, um, how often should should you buy a new mattress? Because mine's ten years old. Is that Ooh, too old? Yeah. I think ten years is yeah. Quite and I suspect line. it's also it's to do with you know yeah. it's associated with my back. Well, it's amazing mm. how so we we've gone through this um, with our mattress where we we had one years ago that was fantastic for many years and we upgraded it and we got another one that just didn't really cut the mustard from the mm. day we bought it. Yeah. And we've replaced that now with another one which you know to me anything around about a thousand bucks is all I'm going to pay for a mattress. And, and and you know I love going. You know, we, we are off topic here, but I love I love the science of selling mattresses yeah. when you go in yeah. and they start doing the math for you. They go, so how many hours do you sleep a day? Yeah. And and I mess with them and I go about two <laughs> because no. you can see they've got the calculations in their head. Well, the average is about seven, so you go seven by seven, blah 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 blah. Yeah. And and you, you're spending about close to a third of your life in the mattress. Oh, yeah. How much did you spend on your car? You, yeah. you only spend like one fiftieth of your. And and I'm like, no, no. You know, this is something that I don't spend much money on because when I'm on it, I'm not conscious. <laughs> so the, the, the sort of science, the science of selling mattresses doesn't work on me. But anyway, people out there, get yourself a new mattress if you haven't done so recently because uh, I'm, I'm feeling better. But. Or in fact, you can rotate the mattress or flip it because if you think of the, the position uh-huh. where your body lies down and, and, and compresses it just by rotating it or turning it upside down, that, that will temporarily solve the problem. Oh, we do that every two to four weeks. That's, that's good. <laughs> I was going to say quick, two to quick four question. hours. Yeah. Soft top or no soft top? Oh, I have a soft top, but I don't right. know. I don't know the science behind yeah. it, really. It we got the soft top. We got yeah. the new soft top. It sounds like buying a card. That's isn't great. It? A coupe. I love it. And uh, I should also say, you know, in, in just, just completing the, the whole the story here, you know, me and Dr. Lauren are fried. Mm-hmm. And I'd just like to say a big hello to Ash from the Children's Hospital Emergency mm-hmm. Room from 2 a.m. last night. Thanks so much for your great service. <laughs> You're very helpful. They are amazing there. But uh, can you provide complimentary beds for parents in, your, <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the emergency room area? In the emergency like, room. Just drop the kids off and go back to sleep. 
Anyway, let's get into some science. Dr. Mm-hmm. Lauren, have you had time to prepare anything? I have. I have very quickly. <laughs> now, I want to do a big shout out today, actually, to um, a scientist from ANU who won the prestigious uh, Kyoto Prize. So, Professor Graham Farquhar um, is a plant physiologist who's been doing a lot of work. Is uh, you know, he has had so many um, accolades and awards. So, this is really just the latest in a long list, including he was part of a group that won the Nobel Prize in 2007. Oh yeah. Um, but I loved this because the Kyoto Prizes. The idea with this um, prize is that it's for science that isn't recognised by the Nobel Prize. So his one has been awarded for basic sciences and biological sciences. Um, He's done, obviously, a huge amount of work, but really what the Kyoto Prize recognised was his work looking at um, world food security by developing strains of wheat that are drought-resistant. Right. Uh, he's also done a lot of work looking at climate change. So before he did his research, there was a lot of mystery about why the clouds and wind patterns weren't changing as climate change models were predicting. And I think we have talked about this on the show a little while ago. Um, but his work basically found that there's been decreases in wind speed over over the last you know few decades, centuries, which uh, are also causing a drop in evaporation, which is making the climate change that we're experiencing damper than what a lot of the previous models had predicted. Uh, so his work is is really, you know, far stretching and mm. very applicable, you know, to a lot of things that are of interest to humans. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I just thought we had to give him a shout out because what amazing work. He, he's a, a, Along with the Nobel Prize, he's also won the 2015 Prime Minister's Prize for Science. He got a rank prize in two, 2014, which he shared with a CSIRO colleague, Richard Richards, and of course the Nobel Prize and now the Kyoto. Yeah, look. His mantelpiece is pretty full. Yeah, it's interesting though, because, you know, people who have been listening to the show for a long time know that I'm not a huge fan of the Nobel because mm. I think the, the rules haven't been updated for the Nobel in such a long time. And the idea you can only give it to three people, yeah. given the current push in science for large collaborative groups, mm-hmm. actually is really inconsistent with the mm. way science has evolved. And, yep. and I understand the origins of it, but I think they really need to shift this a bit. Mm. Also, there's, you know, all these rules around, you know, how it's selected and so forth, some of which are just frankly garbage. Yeah. And, you know, the the weird thing is how many people are almost dead when they, they get it. You know, I mean, they have to <laughs> yeah. wait so long. Like, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, the idea of you getting it quickly is pretty low. That's it, um, that's so, it. But, but still, I mean, I, I wonder how much someone like that values the... Um, the the other prizes, given given yeah. that, but but the I think I think the thing is with the Kyoto prizes, mm. uh, they are ones that are very important because, yeah. as I say, you can only you give out one Nobel a year. Yeah. There are often scenarios where there are more than one pieces of work that year. That's you know, hey, hang on, yeah. we've got to acknowledge this. That's it. And it's like the Oscars, man. You yeah. know, five great films, one gets the gong. Yeah, you know, and, and exactly. That, that doesn't mean the other work isn't prestigious. That's so, it, that's yeah. it. But I do love it. I mean, um, one, one of the quotes that was in some of the, the media around this was, um, you know, they asked him what he would do now, which always intrigues me. I'm like, what? You, you can't really retire. You know, you're not going to just go, okay, give it all up now. <laughs> but he did have a lovely quote, which was, I'm going to keep doing what I like, and I like doing science. So my wife asked me once about, you know, what what the Nobel Prize winners do. And mm. I said, well, frankly, they can do whatever they want because mm. a Nobel Prize winner, most many people will not know this, can rock up to any university and say, I will be a member of your staff because for your international rankings, that is worth so much. Oh, really? You'll just pay me yeah. a shitload of money and I will turn up and have a coffee once a week. Yeah, wow. And that's That'd how we'll nice, do it. Because, because <laughs> you know, they're, they're worth a lot to yeah. have Nobels on staff. Yeah. And, you know... 
it's the prestige that goes with it is extraordinary. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. a currency in itself. It's Interesting. A, you know, it's not to mention the million bucks or whatever you get when you, well, that's you win it. it, if you win it alone. That's obviously. it, that's it. But no, but um, yeah, so yeah, <clears throat> huge, huge shout out. We're very, yeah. very, very proud of you. Great work, great work. Dr. Catherine. I've been interested this week in a new app in t- that allows you to rate science papers. So this app was developed by a biostatistician from Johns Hopkins in, in the US, uh, Jeff Leake, and he developed the app at the end of last year, but it's just been through a very big revamp and, and sort of been re-released, and there's been a lot of interest in the last couple of days about it. And the app is now uh, quite similar to some dating apps, and you may have heard of a dating app called Tinder, where mm. you can you can see a profile on the app and swipe, up or down or left or right, depending on your interest. And now we can do that with scientific reports. Which, which so. way is it going? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, do you know what? I actually, no, no. I'll chuck it. No, no, no. A story for another time. <laughs> so, so we now can do this with scientific papers. So it, it's an interesting concept and, and it's just a little bit of fun, really. So the app is generating abstracts from BioArchives, which is a website that allows people to upload papers before they're peer-reviewed and published. Mm. And that's quite important to note here. So these are pre- Prints and the app um, selects abstracts from that based on what they think you'll like. So mm. you see an abstract on the app, you can uh, swipe up or down, mm. left or right, depending on whether you think it's exciting, boring, probable, or um, likely to or questionable not to occur. So depending on your interest and how you sort of rate that, it will then generate other abstracts that are similar to that. We should get this app for radio broadcasters. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. People <laughs> can judge us real quick. Oh, I don't think I want to know. <laughs> well, no one, no one's actually listening to this program. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be okay. That's right then. And then you can download a list and see what you rated highly, what you rated poorly, yeah. and you can actually then link to the full text articles because in the app right. you only get an access to the abstract. So, but your point is interesting in terms of the actual writers of these journals, whether they can see what people are rating them. It doesn't mm. appear to me like that's uh, able to be done at the moment. Uh, but the app creators are suggesting that that's what another step they'll take the app in terms of having a leaderboard of some of the abstracts that are highly rated compared to to uh, lower rated. It's really interesting too about this, um, you know, the, the algorithms to choose papers that based on what you've yeah. selected. Um, I found out only this week. Everyone listening is probably going to laugh at this about Mendeley, which is a website which apparently does very similar things. You can actually upload your own scientific library, so your EndNote or whatever you use, and it actually goes through and then finds you know, other papers that you might be interested in. Because so, mm. I'm sure every scientist listening to this realises how long it takes to search for literature and how much time we waste trying to do that. Absolutely. Might as well and, use this. And the volume mm. and quantity of papers that, are, that mm. are published every day. And the benefit of this is it gives you information really quickly and that's mm. the, the rationale before it's even published. So it's um, it's a novel use of, of technology. Mm. Um, and, and I know a lot of scientists now use things like Twitter as well to get, get information as quick as it comes out before, yeah. it's, sort of, before it's published. So. I- I have to say, my sympathy for all you young people being older in the room and remembering pulling out these little drawers with cards in them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the amount of ability you have now. To sit. Now, yeah. it's just incredible. And it, it's funny, actually, a colleague of mine in Sydney recently got really upset because a paper that he and I had written some years ago, so that what we would now regard as a seminal paper in our area, um, was not um, referenced by someone who wrote a very similar paper just mm-hmm. last year. 
And he said there's no excuse today, no excuse yeah. whatsoever for not proper referencing yeah. of, of, of work. So. I actually got a paper the other day, um, and it was amazing. It made how amazing this is now. So it's a 1913 paper, so not mm, available online. Nice. But I managed to get it from a university over, overseas, and you know they were able to scan it and send it, and it's just amazing yeah. that you can access pretty much anything now yeah, if, yeah. if you've got the, the avenues, I guess. So. So, so the one thing I hope that this, this allows people to do is, is fill in a gap that I think is extraordinary in the publishing industry, mm. and that is the publishing of null or negative results. Mm. There, there is so much work going on where you, you, you try something and you find it doesn't work and you could save so much money and other people's time by making sure that that knowledge is available out there. So, you know, did, did I try it with this particular wavelength? Um, yes, I did. And that didn't work. And mm. these are the reasons we think it didn't work so mm-hmm. that when, when person X, you know, in another country tries the same thing, just doesn't doesn't happen. So, mm, yeah, that's did you br- very true. Did you bring your child? <laughs> I, don't, I don't, don't think it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> left, you left yours in the car. Yeah. Um, so I've got a quick question. Is you say it's just it's first of all it's bio archive. That's right. Which at I've the heard people is, pronounce yeah. as bio exariv. It's bio archive. It's got a chai or a chai in the middle. Um, uh, but uh, can they only see? Uh, can you only see abstracts? Yes, at the moment, just the abstract and the title. So you okay. can't even see authors or affiliations. But if you download, um, you know, a file from it, it will then have a link to the full text article. Okay, mm-hmm. but generally, you, I guess an abstract should be written well enough that you can understand the contents of the paper. But yeah. sometimes yeah. you need to peek inside. But well, my mm-hmm. my view is always: if you can't tell me in the abstract yes, exactly. that you can write in an interesting way, I'm not going to read on. Mm. Exactly, so, you know, you know so long list of things yeah. and you know confidence intervals sorry statisticians yeah. out there but it kind of you know turns me off i can't read it i can't well, read it as a flow and, and to be fair we build up this this way of acting in everything else in life i mean you don't go to someone and say look i know the first 15 minutes of the movie were absolutely crap but keep watching mm. <laughs> trust mm. us it's going to improve yeah, i mean that true. you know it just doesn't happen right so i mean it should be the same in, in anything with the rewrite mm. dr jeff what do you got well i i um get my um, feeds uh, for, for new articles from Google Scholar and I've set up mm-hmm. about five or six kind of automatic feeds that mm-hmm. I get like three times a week which yeah. is just, it's yes. annoying but good in, in one. But also <laughs> Twitter, I mean my advice is to randomly check Twitter every now mm-hmm. and again. The first 10 or 20 tweets you'll, you'll find if you follow the right people, mm-hmm. you'll find a really important paper. Just what I did this morning, sat in bed thinking, okay, so I have to talk about something today, but this is a trident test way let's let's give it a go and it worked so i found a paper called why is one twin smaller than the other answer could lie in the placenta one of my favorite organs so they uh, it says that researchers at boston's children's hospital find that slower transport of oxygen from the mother to the baby across the placenta predicts slower fetal growth as well as smaller brain and liver and the question is first of all why did they do this study and the second question is how well, why is because being born small is one of the biggest predictors of later, later life chronic diseases, everything from uh, cardiovascular diseases to Alzheimer's and depression. And we've. Do you, do you mean underweight? Not underweight, not, not yes. short small, or small or but gestational just, age. Yeah, just underweight, yeah. yeah. Um, and people have been studying that for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and. Uh, the the why is because why twins first of all they use twins in this well because so many different factors 
uh, complicate these analyses. Why would being shot? Is it something to do with your genes, your environment, or whatever? Mm. So they used um, a pairs of identical twins. Then they brought in some amazing technology, which I still haven't completely understood. Uh, they have this method called BOLD, Blood Oxygenation Level Dependent Magnetic Resonance Imaging. So they can scan you, not just to see what your organs look like in mm. high resolution, but also what the concentration of oxygen is around mm. your blood. But not yeah. just your blood as a mother just about to give birth, mm. but your baby's blood mm. and in your baby's organs. So they have pictures in this paper, 3D modeling of baby's organs and the placenta. And they gave the, the mother a, a shot of 100% oxygen and tracked how that went from uh, into her bloodstream and into each fetus. Now, mm. what the amazing thing is that most people, including many twins researchers, don't understand is that when in twins, when the blood, or the factors in the blood split to twin one and twin two, it's like at each uh, root between the mother and each baby is like an obstacle course. And most of the time that obstacle course is different. And in, there are many factors, small placenta, for example, big versus big placenta. And that happens with the rest of us, not just twins. And they showed that oxygen indeed uh, passes more into, quicker into one of the twins quite often compared to the other twin mm. um, right into the twins or, um, organs like the liver like the liver and the brain so they're starting to get a handle on how can identical twins be different and they hint at the idea that this different levels of oxygen could program each individual twin to different health outcomes in later mm. life wow. probably yeah. due to epigenetics of mm. course mm. but I just thought that this has a great idea of technology mm. meets biology. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it, the, the imagery there is just fabulous, being mm. able to track, track the oxygen yeah. as it passes through. I mean, mm. it's not, you're not putting a radioactive substance in. Yeah, that's the first that. I You're tracking oxygen. Yeah, you know, you're actually yeah. tracking really oxygen. Cool. Yeah, yeah, just oxygen. It's um, amazing. Great story, Jeff. Um, now, I wanted to talk about Elma, which you are all three aware of, of course. Mm-hmm. Elmo. So no, uh, it's a no. sewing machine brand. <laughs> I, I, I do, I do think he said Elmo first. Elmo. So. Elmo. Oh, sorry. Elmo. That uh, red laughing thing. Yeah, yeah, I wonder why you didn't say fud straight away. Um, <laughs> no, this is the Atacama Large Millimeter or Submillimeter Array, also known as Elmo. And um, they've been doing some very interesting work on a on a star cluster that's not, well, not a big cluster, but a group of stars, a multi-star system, very young stars that are about 400 light years away from us. So they're they're relatively close. Um, and these, you, you may remember, a few years back, there was some research done by the same group actually, where around the same star system, they declared that they had discovered sugars. Oh, yeah. yeah. We talked about that. Yeah, yeah. so this was um, something you think, mm. sugar, really? How do you get sugar mm. around the star system? But actually, the requirements to build a sugar, you know, chemically were there. You know, wow. basically. Well, we've already got Mars and the Milky Way, so, <laughs> so I, I, do, I do apologise. Yeah, let's do it, didn't you? <laughs> as, as you should. Um, but the, the new, the new um, molecule that they've just detected is one of the, um, you guys will know what this means more than me, but it's a prebiotic complex organic molecule called methyl isocyanate. And this is pretty important, apparently, because it's one of the precursors um, for building proteins and all sorts of stuff. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, it, uh, 
if it's a oh you said it's a carbon so it's a carbon it's a carbon molecule so it's something mm. like a starch a poly mm. so it's mm. like a a polysaccharide yeah um, so well apparently these molecules are used when you when up. you actually when you build peptides and amino acids so mm. i mean this is really interesting though because what it says is the the ingredients that we commonly think are absolutely necessary on earth to have started life they're actually finding not on planets mm. but in the gas and other clouds around mm. these very early stars mm. and being able to detect these from such a distance is quite extraordinary mm. so so the 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 bits and pieces that have to go into making life and not all of them are there obviously but some of those bits and pieces that we think of commonly like the sugars and mm. you know the bits that go into amino acids mm. are just out there in space mm. actually thiocyanate implies sulfur and nitrogen I think mm. so. Those are involved in making amino acids yeah. and proteins as well. So it's it's just I, I find this incredibly interesting stuff, and it just shows the sensitivity of these instruments. Mm. Of course, what they're using, I suspect, is you know the light from the stars to actually then that light passes through these molecules. It gets changed slightly as a result of that transition, and then we detect that, and then you pull mm. out the information from the change itself to detect um, what these molecules are. But it's it's just fascinating being able to you know look at something that's four hundred light years mm. away. And say, yeah. oh, wow. by the way, yeah. there's sugar there. That's amazing. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Which I, I think is um, it's it's up there with the oxygen MRI stuff to me. <laughs> That's very good stuff. Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks. In the studio with us now is Dr. Kevin Rowe. He's from Museum Victoria. Kevin, welcome to the studios of Triple R. Thank you for having me. You've been here before. I have been here before. You've been here before. Now you've uh, recently been working in the rainforests of Indonesia, as we all do, <laughs> and. And you found something quite new and different. Give us, uh, give, us, uh, give us a feel first about what you were looking for and what you ended up discovering. Well, we went to the island of Sulawesi um, looking mostly for their small mammals, particularly the rats. Uh, Sulawesi is the largest landmass between Asia and Australia, and I'm really interested in the origin of rats in Australia. And we know they came from Asia, but we knew very little bit little about how they transitioned through Sulawesi and its role. Um, and when we started, there were around 40 species uh, of rats on Sulawesi. They were only found on Sulawesi and nowhere else. And we had very few of those in modern records. We had very few in uh, modern phylogenies, and we had very few genetic samples. So we went there to get genetic samples, uh, and we knew there were a lot of really weird and rare animals there. There were mm. species, even genera, known only from a single specimen. Right. Um, and one of these is uh, the genus Somaromis, which was described in uh, 2004 from a, a single specimen collected in 1973 by a U.S. Naval Medical team hmm. um, and it has this really weird nose where uh, the nasals and premaxillaries and the bones that make up your nose grow past its teeth and it sticks out and has a little right. tube of bone in front of it um, that probably helps it smell out its prey of little arthropods and little um, fly larvae and hmm. so we had hoped to find one of those we thought it was going to take us 25 years to find all these weird rats but um, we've already seen every uh, genus known there and now put them in a phylogeny but we've also discovered more than five new genera along the way um, one of which the most recent of which is a rat we're calling the uh, slender rat uh, the genus gracilimus gracile meaning slender and most meaning rat mm. um, that we discovered in 
the high moss forests of Sulawesi's, one of Sulawesi's largest mountain, Mount Gandang Dawata. Now, now, tell us a bit about the process of defining something as new, because, uh, you know, there's been many occasions where so even old records from, from the past now, you know, the I remember the, the Brontosaurus and the Apathosaurus scenario, right? I mean, these things get reclassified and so forth. There must be a fairly high threshold these days, though, to define something as a new entry. Well, we've been lucky. The things that we're finding are so different that right. it's a pretty low right. threshold. Okay. So you don't have to be a very good scientist uh, or yeah, a very right. good taxonomist like me to uh, describe them. Um, but taxonomy, the, the description of species, the naming of species, begins with comparison. That's why we have mm-hmm. museums, because you have to go to those museums and compare the existing uh-huh. names. And for every name, there is something called a type specimen, a holotype, and then the paratypes, the associated specimens that are define the characteristics of that species. And today, when we talk about characteristics, it's morphology, it's genetics, it can be um, ecological models, it can be all kinds of variables that use the best of science to define what differentiates species. And, and how do you... So this is the part that I always find amazing about this. How do you know... Say, say, I, say I find two rats, and they look quite different, but, you know, I mean, Lauren and I look quite different. I mean, some people can't pick it, but, you know, <laughs> we look quite different. Um, and, then, and then you look at them genetically, and they're very close as well. How, how do you know it isn't just some kind of, you know, slight anomaly within the one, one species, that, you know, these things aren't really, you know, separated... Well, so the answer is we have to study and keep looking at these questions. And I'll give you an example from Sulawesi, from a recent trip we just went on. So Sulawesi has these five peninsulas. The northern peninsula is this long uh, eastward-pointing peninsula, at the end of which is the great city of Manado and some of the best diving in the world, and mm-hmm. um, Bunaken and other places, um, and the Minahasan people there who um, have a table diet. They eat everything with four legs. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Much like us. <laughs> there, there were two, uh, two uh, species in the genus Radis, um, but a endemic group of Radis in this Radis anthurus group. And one of them is this Radis anthurus, a big, giant, woolly, really long-haired thing, and another species there, Radis um, marmosurus, which is very small and soft. Um, and and uh, we were finding these rats out in Minahasa country, and we thought they were two species. Local people had different names for them. They called Santhurus toreyan, and they called the, the little Marmosaurus uh, Malaput. We brought them back, and once we started sequencing them, they realized that they're not different at all, and that we think is this is some form of indeterminate mm. growth. So just right. as they get older and yeah. and more hairy and more grizzly, then they and more mm. nasty looking, which might explain the differences between mm. you two. But. <laughs> 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 I, I'm older and more grizzly. Although you have less hair than I do. So. Yeah. That's nice. Um, I'm really fascinated with how you go to find these, these animals. So obviously, from listening to you speak then, you know a lot about the culture and the people. So do you sort of, I, I guess, get input from the local communities about where you're going to go to find this particular species? Well, yeah, all our work takes place at local levels, at the national level. So we're working with the National Institute of Sciences, LIPI, and the National Museum, the Museum Zoologico Bogoriense, and our colleagues there. Uh, and then we'll have local university colleagues from Sulawesi, and then it, all the way down to the local village. So everything we do is um, under the approval and guidance of the Capaladesa, the village head, and then we have with us local guides. And some of those local guides can be extremely knowledgeable about the forest. Mm. So the slender rat, Gracilimus radix, um, it's really the slender root rat, but that's harder to say in Australia. And it's named that because the local people called it the root rat because it was foraging an animal they knew to forage among the roots. Mm-hmm. And so it's meant to recognize their actual knowledge of the, of mm. the species. Mm. 
Um, I got two. Uh, I have two questions. One is a very quick question. Is is how big? When you take saying big, how big is the biggest rat that that you've that was on Sulawesi? Because when we uh, think the, big, we're thinking cat size or just a little bit smaller than cat. The largest rats on Sulawesi are about six hundred, seven hundred grams. Mm. Okay. okay. So, uh, so but there are rats on uh, Flores, for instance, that are two kilos. Wow. Papagomis, and on okay. the cloud rats of the uh, Philippines can be two kilograms. The, that, that, these have all got great names. A cloud rat and a yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cloud my, rats my are main, amazing animals. Wow. My main question is, how do you sample for genetics? Can you can you do it without killing the animal? Can you cut the end of its tail off, or or um, or do you have to kill an animal to one of these rat specimens to actually take some blood for genetics? Um, well, we, we, we do some work where we just take genetic samples, um, particularly where we have a good handle on the morphology and species boundaries uh, like we do in Victoria. So we're mostly just taking uh, little non-lethal genetic samples. But okay. in Sulawesi, where this is, we're going to mountains that nobody's surveyed before, mm. the genetic samples are only one piece of the puzzle. And then the morphology and mm. um, everything else is a big part of it. So this rat that we just discovered is getting all this kind of interrogation now. So we've done the genetic work. We did the basic description. We've now been dissecting its chewing muscles to understand how it chews oh. because it's related to other rats that have no teeth, and so they don't chew, the only rats that have really no teeth. Um, and so we're trying to understand what they do with their chewing muscles so they have no teeth. And we're also looking at their how their legs evolve. So some of these things are arboreal. The closest relative to the slender rat is amphibious. It's swimming in the water. So how is that changing? Um, oh. And hmm. so all that material is there. Only if we um, so the whole you the look at really the whole picture every everything we're everything trying to we're looking at everything animals. from morphology to wow. blood parasites to uh, ecology mm. diet and everything to try to understand wow. these animals now, now Kevin this this new slender rat is well I guess it's not new new to us um, is has been listed in the top ten new species for 2017 my understanding is that's from a list of eighteen thousand new species and you've made it to the top ten what what does a rat have to do to get in the top ten? I mean, this seems like an extraordinary accolade with very low chance of success. Well, I think what's really extraordinary is that we're describing 18,000 species yeah, a year. Well, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and how many species on this planet we still don't know. We yeah. estimate it's, we know about 25, we've described about 25% of species. And that's even in Australia, so mm. we still have... Uh, a long way to go to understand life on, on Earth. Um, but it's certainly an accolade to be the only mammal on a list uh, mm -hmm. of, of new species. And it's in part because I think there's two things really interesting about the slender rat. One is that the forest it's coming from is really amazing and intact. Uh, it's the, f the fourth new species we've described from that forest, the third new genus. Uh, and it's in it houses... Uh, 24 species of rats found nowhere else mm. that we know of and compare that to the nine species of rats we have across all Victoria. Yeah. Um, so mm. it's a really diverse area and those rats are just a symbol of all the other mammal diversity there. So we have uh, Anoas, which are these pygmy water buffaloes that are endemic to Sulawesi and uh, macaques and tarsiers and all kinds of amazing animals uh, living in the same forest that is basically under the protection of local people only and has no other formal protection. Now, now just clarify something in the biology sense for me, because I'm a physics guy, so I don't always understand this, but if, if they're different species of rats, that means they don't interbreed, right? Is, is that right? Usually. There are cases of hybridization, so, you know, species yeah, like donkeys. are always... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, donkeys and horses making <laughs> mules, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not a very effective hybridization, because yeah, yeah. mules are don't sterile, work. but... Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but effectively, they, that, that's, that's how you separate them in a way, isn't it? Is that they, they don't intermix. They're, they don't they're, intermix, they're yeah, and separated. hybrids often are the way we demonstrate that. So you get mm, what you get yeah. calls a hybrid zone, where you get two species that come together where they can interbreed, but then that 
area of interbreeding doesn't spread very far. Mm. And so that mm. tells you that these are good species. And actually, you can learn a lot about mm. the evolution of speciation mm. by going to those hybrid zones and looking at the genes that are under selection and um, this yeah. reinforcement selection, these kind of things. I remember aspects. a small amount of my year-living biology. <laughs> yeah. um, now, the, the last thing I wanted just to talk to you about was the um, this issue of you, you know how many species we're losing year, and often often I've heard this comment that you know we've discovered you know there's 18 new species that have been you know identified this year. But to me, these aren't new species that are popping up; these are new ones we're observing. So when we talk about loss due to climate change, that's just net loss. It's not like there are new species popping up at the same rate. I mean, is that how, how do you see that in terms of that that balance sheet of species overall? Well, certainly. I mean, what we're measuring is that extinction right now is outpacing speciation. Mm-hmm. Speciation is, is happening; it's ongoing, um, but it's really hard to detect because it happens mm. at such. Extinction happens over a very short time scale, yep. so you can measure it, you can see it. Speciation can take uh, centuries. You know, centuries. Yeah, 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 and you yeah. can have things that are separated geographically now. Are they and not breeding? Are they new species? Or mm. in a thousand years, are they going to come back together uh, and breed, and, and, breed yeah. and then be yeah. a species again? So I think there's. A sort of scientific uh, bias towards being able to detect extinction, not being able to detect speciation. Mm. Um, but things are probably going extinct before we ever find them. Mm. We yeah. certainly know that by looking in the subfossil record. So, looking especially in Australia, you can look around at our estimates of extinctions historically are much less than probably what happened because when we go back to the fossil record, we can date things to historical era, mm. uh, and mm. they're not currently running around. So. Mm. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us, and it's great to uh, to see this this work being done. Um, the the rat is now on display as of last Friday, I think, in the Melbourne. Yes, Museum. if you right? want to see the latest uh, mammal species, come to Melbourne Museum, and you can see the slender rat on display and learn more about the forests of Mount Gandangdawata. Fantastic! Thanks for having me. Three. Uh, you're listening to Three Triple R, folks. In the studio now, we have Professor Ralph Hayes. He's from the School of Earth Sciences and the Peter Cook Centre for Carbon Capture Storage Research at the University of Melbourne. Ralph, welcome to Triple R. Good morning, everyone. Now, um, you're working in an area... I mean, there's some controversy around this, so it's, it's something that we want to explore in some detail. Um, first of all, give us a bit of an idea of what we mean by carbon capture and storage. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but yes. in, in the more detailed sense, what, right. what are you trying to do? So carbon capture and storage is a emerging technology, um, but which has been developed over the last 15 or 20 years here in Australia. And um, it's really a response to the very large CO2 emissions, the carbon dioxide emissions we have from uh, mostly industrial sources, um, including power, points, uh, power plants, but also the steel industry, the cement industry, uh, petrochemical industries. And we know that we have to do something about it. Mm. So um, we are working on a technology where we can separate the carbon dioxide from other industrial sources. We compress it, so we make it a denser, uh, a more fluid phase, and then we transport it to a site where we as geologists um, think that it's safe to store it over a very long time. Mm. And so that's where the term carbon capture and storage comes from. We capture the CO2 from the source and we bring it to uh, a sink, a point where we think we can store it long term. So let's talk about the capture part, first of all. I mean, what's involved in, in actually getting, you know, 
have some weird images of what this might mean, but but as you say, there's a lot of materials coming out. You know, say the coal-fired power, power yes. plants and other and other things. I mean, there's right. many sources, but you know, this is a, a complex material. It's not just CO2. Yeah. What do you have to do to actually grab the CO2 itself? Right. So first of all, we have to keep the scale in mind. These are very large CO2 emissions, so we're mm-hmm. looking at very large rates and volumes of gases coming out of a, a chimney, if you want. Mm-hmm. And so we have to develop technologies and materials along with that um, to separate a single gas, in this case carbon dioxide, from other gases that could be vapor like water, could be nitrogen and um, and, and SO2 gases, for example. And so um, over the years, we've developed a number of different materials, including membranes and so-called sem- um, solvents and adsorbing materials, which can do that. And um, we should also point out that not every um, industrial CO2 source is the same. So we're right. looking at a whole range of different um, emission sources. And so we develop technologies for the different types of industrial sources. And, and I assume some of these sources, are all, they're all at different temperatures and pressures and so forth as yes. well. Do you have to deal with all that as well? Or Absolutely, yeah. yes. That all goes into, into this technology development. And um, as you mentioned, the temperature, it's actually very important that we integrate the technology so that we don't have, um, that we can use the temperature from the chimney, for example, for another process we, we need further downstream in, in, the, in the processing. Mm. Is there nothing we can do with CO2? I mean, I just think it's got carbon. We use that a lot in other yep. things. It's got oxygen. That sounds good. Yep. I mean, but we're talking about just storing. I mean, is there nothing at the moment that we can do in an energy, I guess, efficient way right. that says, hey, we've got this material. Yep. It's made up of two atoms that we love. Yep. Um, why can't we do anything right. else? Yeah. Now, this is a very good and very important question, very timely. Um, and there are ways to use the CO2. The most widely used of CO2 is currently for... Uh, Technology we refer to enhanced oil recovery. We can use the CO2 to pump it into the subsurface and thereby we mobilize actually remaining um, hydrocarbons, oil, um, from the, from the reservoir and actually can push it out so that we can um, extract that as well. So we mm. often use that towards the end of a, an oil um, production uh, field um, to basically be more efficient in the um, extraction of remaining hydrocarbons in the reservoir. It's called enhanced oil recovery. And in that mm-hmm. case, we refer to carbon capture and utilization because we deliberately include utilization of carbon dioxide in, in this process. What's the efficiency like of these technologies? Because I mean, anything short of probably 90%, and I don't think right. these things would be well supported because, yes. you know, they're, they're basically being put on, on existing scenarios that are really bad. Yes. So unless you can grab all of it... Now, I understand, you know, we, we spoke in the green room about this, and, and this is a, is a Band-Aid strategy in mm. one sense for a really bad scenario that's not going away too soon. So right. if, we can, if we can do something to fix that um, in the short term or at least reduce it, great. Mm. But what's the efficiency at the moment? How's that... Well, has it been progressing, actually? Because I, I suspect it's going up. It is going up. We come, become better and better. It's typically around 80 to 90%. Okay. Again, it depends on the industrial source, but typically it's between 80 and 90%. Hmm. I'm 
also really interested in how many um, industrial sources are using this technology already. So, you know, right. if, if in one particular plant, for example, yeah. it's that, you know, how, what's the uh, take-up of the technology? Right. So most of the carbon capture technology is currently installed, indeed, uh, associated with uh, coal-fired power plants because those are the, the major CO2 emissions we have. And, um, and most of the CO2 is then actually used um, for storage, but also for this process of enhanced oil recovery. Um, there is one um, plant, one facility in the USA, in, in Illinois, where they actually capture CO2 from a biomass combustion process. Mm. So, if as an industry, if I capture CO2 and, and hand it to you to store somewhere, right? Am I paid for that? Is, is there an incentive for me to actually capture it and, and, and pass it on to the people who store it? Well, at the moment, as you know, we don't have uh, a price on carbon. Mm. Um, so only the utilization of carbon dioxide then provides a, a partly or a full cost recovery for you as an industrial proponent. Um, that's the reason why we see worldwide that EOR is the major um, utilization of carbon dioxide associated with car uh, CCS, carbon, um, carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Rob, tell us a bit about the, the, the storage part, because I always find it fascinating that you can, you can pump this stuff into the ground and it will stay there, presumably. Right. I mean, this is the argument, right? I mean, yeah. It's very similar to, you know, you have a high-pressure high um, gas or oil field under the ground and yep. until, you, until you poke a hole in it, it stays there under high pressure. How do we do the same thing with the... Is this liquefied CO2 at that point? It is indeed liquefied. Um, so we compress the gas to the point where it becomes a liquid. We call it a supercritical phase. Um, the advantage is that it's much denser and we are much more efficient in our storage capacity um, and often we find these conditions below a depth of about 800 meters mm. in, in the, uh, below the ground. And, um, yeah, then the, the CO2 actually behaves like a liquid and we, in, we can inject it into porous uh, sandstones. And what's important is that the uh, liquid CO2 has a lower density than water, so it actually tends to migrate upwards. And so we as geologists have to find a situation where we not only can inject it into a porous rock, but we find a, a cap rock or a seal on top of that reservoir, which then ensures that the CO2 cannot migrate any further upwards. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and how many of those sort of sites are there? I mean, are these sites that are, you know, I, I suppose the X um, sites that have been used for petrochemical extraction yeah. are still there? Yeah. Are there a lot of these sites that are available or are there, there ones that we're constantly trying to find? I mean... Well, there was actually a very uh, national assessment of uh, suitable CO2 storage sites being done. I think it was published in 2009 here for Australia. And um, it came up with a, a ranking of different um, CO2 storage sites. And so not every site is of the same quality as another site. Um, but it turns out that the most suitable site for CO2 storage is actually here in Victoria and in the offshore area of Victoria in the so-called Gippsland Basin. And um, the Victorian government has been exploring for uh, suitable sites in the, in the Gippsland Basin for a number of years now. And we believe, still believe, that um, despite of all the, the research and the scrutiny we've, we've looked at, um, it's still the best site to find suitable storage sites. We also should say that um, 
The Gibson Basin is well known for abundant uh, gas and oil reservoirs. So those are reservoirs which have exactly the same characteristics. They have porous rocks, which are then have sealing units like a cap rock on top, where then the gas and the, CO- and the uh, hydrocarbons have been kept um, basically stored over geological time. And that gives us confidence mm. that this is going to work for CO2 as well. Mm. It must, I mean, you, you must have a lot of people who really want to see you guys out of business in, in a sense because <laughs> we, we want to move away from this, this need um, down the track. Right. Uh, I, I mean, what sort of lifetime do you think this carbon capture storage type technology will have? I mean, before we, you know, I mean, there are countries around the world now who are completely coal-free and yes. petrochemical-free yes. in general. Uh, how, how long, I mean, this is a bit of a race in a way. I mean, we, yeah. we've got to do something quickly. Absolutely. But by the same token, I'm sure you'd be happy to see, you know, this research becoming yes. redundant. I mean, right. what, what's the thinking there in terms of timeframes? Well, look, uh, this is a very difficult question. Um, but I agree that um, fossil fuels and uh, carbon capture and storage should be seen as a, as a transient technology. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we have to move into uh, a carbon-free, carbon-constrained uh, world, and there's no question about it. About the pace and at what time we become um, carbon-free, if you want, that's a very difficult one. Uh, there were also times when we were a lot more optimistic in um, industry-scale deployment, let's say, um, realization of industry-scale CCS in Australia. Um, it, it hasn't evolved as quickly as we thought, and it turns out that it was mostly around policy frameworks not in place. We had to develop regulation. We talked about the price on carbon before. It certainly costs uh, money. And all that needs to fall in place, come together before this new technology can actually be rolled out and used at a very large scale. Mm. Well, Ralph, it's uh, great talking to you. And uh, as I say, I think this is a you know this is an incredibly big Band-Aid situation you're working on, but one that I suspect in the short term we absolutely need to pursue um, because I don't see people turning off their coal-powered um, electricity uh, just yet, um, although we, we'd all love to see that. It's, not, it's just simply not going to happen realistically. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R and good luck with the research. Thank you very much. Three. Uh, you're listening to Three Triple R, folks. Uh, we've only got about four minutes to go, but I wanted to mention something to you all. Um, now, you, you in the studio, you, you would remember the Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's one of our childhood dinosaurs, <laughs> and it's a big, scaly beast. You know that mm-hmm. um, would rip you apart, kind With of thing. Really little arms, scaly or feathery. <laughs> Well, now, this is the whole point, yes, because, (laughs) you know, we always have this image of this fierce creature, you know, I think um, uh, Steven Spielberg gave us a good look at that Mm -hmm. in in the film Jurassic Park, this fierce creature covered in scales, lizard-like, you know, yes, with the little arms, but, you know, everyone everyone has issues with the little arms, but, you know, I'm sure they... uh, they may have been big earlier. You know, yeah, in yeah. This, in this it, evolution. It, it could have always been a shorthand typist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But, but, you know, recently there's been a bit of an attack on the aggressiveness of the T-Rex with the idea that maybe it was feathery like a chicken, mm. um, not scaly like an alligator, you know, so... Mm. Uh, this has been something that's been pushed around, and we know we know that there is a lot of evidence of various dinosaurs having feathers and, and perhaps being the precursors to birds and so forth. Um, but some work has been done just recently where I, I'm not sure if this is a whole other, you know, good old time of saying, hey, no, the T Rex has got to maintain its integrity. <laughs> um, but they were looking through uh, some of the uh, amazing um, samples, uh, sort of the fossil database that's held at the Houston Museum of Natural Science, and they have found um, sections of a neck pelvis. Um, 
and tail of a T-Rex, all that indicate, when you look at these things, these pictures of them, they're quite fascinating, uh, they all show what looks like that scaly pattern mm. that you're used to seeing on lizards. So mm. um, now maybe there were feathers sticking out of it somewhere that never made it through <laughs> the fossilisation process, but it seems pretty clear from that at least, and this was um, you know, listed essentially as compelling evidence, and it was, it was uh, in the um, Royal Society Journal Biology Letters, which mm. is quite a prestigious international journal, mm. um, that this data says no, T-Rex had scales. Yeah, nice. So, I always loved the, um, the thing that we don't know what colour they were. Yeah, the colour. I, I, I love that. Like, they could have all been bright pink and purple. And I remember painting them when I was a kid as well. I was, yeah. I was allowed a, a wide palette. I could choose yeah, whatever yeah, I wanted. Yeah, go whatever you want, exactly. Not literally painting one, but painting a little yeah. model. Yeah, of yeah, one. yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, if, if we look now, especially at birds mm. and, and the, the vast variety of colours mm. in you know, birds, you think, well, yeah, it probably made sense, especially the feathery dinosaurs mm. were probably quite coloured. That's Some it. Them, you know, but can, I, I, I'm sure... Yeah. Somebody, I'm sure somebody has actually guessed at some point the colour. Uh, you know, yeah, because yeah, you can, you can say work. similar lizards and yeah, etc. So yeah. maybe out there is the answer yeah. already, a plausible Look, answer. What, I'm going to go- Google it out there. What colour was a T Rex? Google it. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> stuff. And I just think it's, it's great that we can look at these things that were, you know, between 65 million years together mm. ago and, and a bit longer and say, um, we're pretty sure it had scales. I mean, that, that's, a, amazing. that's amazing research. It's fantastic stuff that these things have been preserved for so long. Anyway, we're out of time, folks, so we're going to have to leave you with that. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo today. Dr. Lauren, good to see you. Pleasure. Dr. Catherine. Thank you, Dr. Shane. Dr. Jeff. Reddish brown. Thank you very much. Reddish brown. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will have a chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.